Hello everyone out there in podcast land. This is Karen Wickiam, your host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello, hello, hello everybody. Good morning, good evening, good night from wherever you are at whatever time you're listening to. Thank you for joining me. Before I start off the show, I have to say how much I appreciate all of you for listening and supporting the show. I have two new iTunes reviews. Thank you to Sasha917. And from the ladies of History Goes Bump, thank you so much. I can only hope to be half as good as they are one day. Go check them out. History Goes Bump. It's an amazing, amazing podcast. I also want to announce that I now have a Patreon account, and I'm so excited to thank Tyler and Beck from the Minds of Madness and Ronnie for being my first and second supporters. Thank you so much, you guys. If you wouldn't mind checking out the Patreon page and consider offering me some support, it would mean so much. Any amount would be wonderful. It'll help cover my costs of producing the show and eventually help to improve my equipment so I can put out the best podcast or the best sounding podcast possible. I also want to say thank you to the Facebook group, Podcast We Listen To, for all your support. If you're a podcaster or love podcasts, this is a great group to check out and be a part of. Everybody is wonderful It is so supportive and a lot of fun as well. So please go check them out. So without further ado, I'd like to start episode six, part four of the Dr. Lobotomy miniseries. I last left off with Dr. Freeman lobotomizing veterans and palliative patients. Some of our most vulnerable population that there is. But that seems to be who he directs himself at. Definitely this is a treatment for the mentally ill, but he just kept sliding everybody into a category to lobotomize. Freeman was moving into even more dark, uncharted territory. He was becoming more reckless if that's possible, and he was literally getting away with murder. I guess you can say that he had been for a while. At home, his wife Marjorie was slipping deeper into alcoholism. Freeman rarely drank. He stated that he didn't like the lack of control that he felt from drinking. However, one of the few times he did drink, he thought it would be a good idea to operate on a patient. And this is his recount of the surgery. The last time I got drunk, I neglected a patient upon whom I operated botched the surgery. A referring doctor took over, but couldn't save the patient. You think that that would be the final straw. This would be the end of Freeman. But we all know, I'm sure you're all out there yelling, no, why? In fact, he probably should have gone to jail, but of course he didn't. And as I just mentioned, things were not going so well at home. Freeman was rarely there, and Marjorie was becoming more and more isolated, and her health was deteriorating and the alcohol abuse was getting worse. 
During this time, Freeman had been traveling across the country, teaching and performing transorbital lobotomies wherever a hospital would let him. He mostly went to smaller hospitals in remote areas because they were desperate and their standards were more lax. In the summertime, he incorporated his summer vacations with being a lobotomy traveling salesman. He called these trips headhunting excursions, and he named his van the Lobotomobile. He would bring his younger children along. They would stay at some national parks and cottages, and he would frequently leave his boys alone at these cottages and parks. Keen, age 11, and Randy, age 9, for days at a time. Unfortunately, tragedy would strike one of his children during his stay at Yosemite Park. Keen, 11, fell into a riverbed above a waterfall and plunged to his death. His remains were found a week later. Freeman wouldn't have his son's remains sent to Washington to where his family was because, as he said, it was too depressing. And he had him buried in California. He robbed his wife and family the ability to mourn the little boy and be able to pay respects and visit him easily. His son Randy, nine years old at the time, witnessed the accident and he was very close to Keene. Freeman reported that Randy was doing well and acting like his normal self, only this wasn't true at all. Freeman finally took his son home after completing the tour. You think that he would have gone home himself to mourn with his family and have the little boy in a place where he would have the comfort of familiar settings and loved ones. But no, he continued on his trip. And when he returned home, he suffered from terrible nightmares. He withdrew to himself and became very anxious and depressed. And what I'm about to say is with all sincerity, I am shocked that he didn't perform a lobotomy on his youngest son and his wife because they fit his criteria. But I think that even Freeman knew that that would be taking it too far. Either that or he knew that the transorbital lobotomy was, was not the successful surgery he made it out to be. Freeman put Keane's death behind him. He dismissed his family's mourning and continued on with his work. The only thing that he spoke about his son's death afterwards was that he felt simple regret. So while his family was drowning in grief, he carried on pitching his transorbital lobotomy. While on the road, the death toll kept climbing. While on his tour across country, he was not just doing the transorbital lobotomy, he was still doing some prefrontal lobotomies. And here are some patients that were horribly affected by it, more horrible than usual. One patient died from meningitis when her compulsive hair pulling produced an infection at the site of the entry hole in her skull. One person died of extreme inertia. She became catatonic and wouldn't eat or drink or care for herself. So they decided to operate again, even though they knew it was risky, and she died. Another patient died of shock, dehydration, and this person was also so mentally unwell before surgery and after surgery that they were too weak and ravaged to survive. One died from a convulsive state induced by the operation, and another from a fractured hip suffered when the patient lost her balance after kicking one of the attendants while trying to run away from getting the surgery. A patient suffered permanent left arm paralysis 
and developed a constant unsettling explosive laugh due to the imprecise coring drilling in the brain. During one surgery he conducted under local anesthetic, the doctors accidentally severed the anterior cerebral artery, a major blood vessel, while making the upward cut on the left frontal lobe. And this is what he wrote. The disaster was followed by an oh my, and the patient vomited and lapsed into unconsciousness. Her pulse plummeted, BP soared, blood spurted around the cannula, and the patient's brain bulged. After managing to staunch the bleeding and administering two blood infusions, the doctor completed the lobotomy. He continued on with surgery anyway. The recovery was slow and incomplete, and the patient died during a seizure four months later. There was another patient that after a reoperation left the patient overcome by exhaustion and was afflicted with a strange, as he put, bulldog reflex in which she gets something in between her teeth and clamps down and won't let go. She could only communicate through movements of her feet. And he said, I am afraid that she has gone goose as far as useful life hereafter is concerned. Freeman carried a pistol everywhere he went because he got so many death threats from former patients and family members. He had his office arranged in such a way that he could see people enter his office and had an escape route out. Freeman was such an egomaniac that anyone that was late or didn't want to have treatment or showed any sort of opposition towards him would really get him angry. In 1950, after a patient had three times not appeared for office appointments to receive a transorbital lobotomy, Freeman learned that the police were holding the man after a disturbance in a motel room near Bethesda, Maryland. Frustrated by the missed appointments, Freeman loaded his car with medical gear and a portable ECT machine and drove towards Bethesda. He left Washington, D.C. and drove all the way to Maryland. When he arrived at the motel, Freeman informed the patient's brother that lobotomy would happen immediately or not at all. The brother consented and the police wrestled the patient to the floor of the motel room. Freeman applied the terminals of the ECT machine to the patient's head, knocked him out and performed the lobotomy in less than 10 minutes. John Williams, his new partner, recalled that Freeman had the nerve to submit a medical insurance claim for this lobotomy. And when Blue Cross turned him down on the conditions that Freeman was not a surgeon and had performed operations outside the hospital, Freeman persuasively recounted the emergency circumstances of the lobotomy and won his payment. Unbelievable. There was so much injustice done here. A mentally ill man is arrested held down, had a lobotomy performed on him, assaulted and brutalized. He didn't or couldn't consent. The police allowed this to happen. They assisted him. Granted, Freeman was very good at being manipulative and he knew his way around legal speak. The fact that Walter drove all the way there to lobotomize a patient who missed appointments showed his state of mind. He was angry and in a way he was punishing the patient with a lobotomy under the guise of emergency surgery. As you can hear, Freeman's psychopathy was worsening. Freeman's criteria for lobotomy was forever changing. His new motto was to operate as soon as someone showed signs of mental illness. However, mental illness was diagnosed in those days. 
One of Freeman's most publicly notorious and biggest failures is the lobotomy he performed on Rosemary Kennedy. I will be doing an episode on Rosemary Kennedy after this lobotomy series. So I'm just going to go into some light detail here. Rosemary Kennedy was the sister of John F. Kennedy from the Kennedy dynasty family. She was different than the rest of her other eight siblings, physically and intellectually. She was the quietest and the most beautiful. She had a learning disability, possibly brought on by a birth injury like hypoxia or lack of oxygen. She was allowed to live a normal life without a chaperone for a while. But as she got older, she began to suffer from mood swings. She would have uncontrollable outbursts, her arms would be flailing, and her voice would rise into a very high, angry pitch. She would sneak out at night and return early in the morning hours disheveled. So being a Kennedy, the all-American dynasty, they had to keep up the impeccable appearance because the public had seen them as the squeaky clean, upstanding, all-American dream family. Joe Kennedy ran the family with an iron fist. He was a tyrant and he was a bastard, in my opinion. His wife was often left out of the loop of some of the most important family decisions and situations. Ironically, here's a quote about Joe. Joe liked to cut away at a problem and then move on. And this is exactly, literally what he did with his daughter. He had her lobotomized, put away, and moved on. The lobotomy was a horrible failure. It left her inert and unable to speak more than a few words. She had permanent and devastating brain damage on top of all the underlying medical conditions. Joe was angry that she didn't recover fast enough, so he had her institutionalized. He ripped her away from the family. Joe didn't even tell his wife what he did until after the fact, and it was over 20 years of her living in a remote institution before family even knew where she was. It was just horrible, and I will be doing a much more in-depth episode. Now, I'd like to move on and talk about the worst Nobel Prize ever. In 1949, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine was won by Egas Monis for his discovery of the therapeutic value of leucotomy and certain psychosis. This Nobel Prize was actually shared that year between Walter Rudolf Hess and Egas Monis. Here's the story behind it. Freeman idolized Monis. He constantly wrote him love letters that gushed with fanboy love. Freeman visited him any chance he could, and Monez knew how much Freeman enamored him. So he asked him to endorse a nomination for a Nobel Prize. Monez knew that Freeman was getting a lot of attention in the U.S. for his procedure. The thing is, you're not supposed to ask people to nominate you. You are supposed to be nominated based on your own merit. Freeman agreed to put a vote in for him because... If Monas won, he figured he would become famous riding on Monas's coattails. Freeman also expected Monas to vote for him in return. Monas did not, and this pissed Freeman off. Freeman's delusions of grandeur had him believing that he deserved a Nobel Prize for using Monas's procedure. 
Unfortunately, this Nobel Prize was a smashing blow to the critics of psychosurgery. The committee's recognition of monas helped launch a worldwide wave of lobotomies. Within a month, 5,000 psychosurgeries were performed more than in the previous 14 years. Psychosurgery became the number one form of treatment in the U.S., and more than half of the U.S. institutions performed it. Here's a quote from Freeman in regards to this success. This has, to my mind, been the most gratifying work of my life, to have been the means of relieving suffering and restore a goodly number of patients to their homes has outweighed the disappointments and failures. Bull crap. Suffering wasn't relieved, it was worsened, and only a third of his patients showed any sign of improvement. They either went from violent to zombie or zombie catatonic to somewhat less catatonic. Here's another quote from him. As I approach my 52nd birthday, I have a feeling of competence and insurance that's almost grandiose. Well, he got the grandiose part right. He became an internationally known VIP in some circles, and some might say a celebrity, at least in his own mind. He settled into a pleased and gloating existence with his intolerable arrogance and reckless behavior. He was tolerated by not liked. And I love this one here. He had a famous Belgian artist paint his portrait. And this is what he said. I don't know what better investment I could make at the present time in terms of personal satisfaction and gratification of ego. The portrait shows me at the peak of my professional career. He got worse the more popular he became, and this led to his ultimate demise. It was his undoing. And as we could all guess, he was going to be completely obnoxious if he became successful, as he was already had a grossly exaggerated opinion of himself. There were many articles being written about him and lobotomy at the time appearing in newspapers and magazines, as many as two a week. And the articles led an avalanche of letters and phone calls from people who wanted lobotomies for themselves and for their relatives. He got a letter from one man who complained of asthma and wanted to know if this brain operation would cure it. Can you imagine? There were some newspapers that saw right through him in his procedure. A writer by the name of Irving Wallace of the Saturday Evening Post wrote an article called, They Cut Away His Conscience. Wallace chronicled in lengthy detail the poor outcome of lobotomy of a brilliant man named Herbert Kaufman. After the operation, he was undeniably a less intellectual and capable man. Freeman lost his shite. He said the article was too unfavorable and liable to open him to censor from colleagues in the medical profession. Uh, yeah, of course. This is what Wallace wrote, and I think it's so perfectly said. On the other hand, there is the school of thought that can prove, also with facts, the prefrontal lobotomy converts patients into docile, inert, often useless drones, stripping them of their old powers, giving them convulsive seizures, making them indifferent to social amenities, filling them with aggressive misbehavior, and impairing their foresight and insight. 
There are those who feel the operation tampers with God's substance, who feel that if it cuts out a man's cares, it also cuts out his soul and his conscience. Well said, Wallace. Freeman continued on his headhunting trips, visiting as many remote hospitals as possible to pitch the lobotomy. Even though the transorbital lobotomy had become very popular, many of the large prestigious hospitals wanted nothing to do with it. The smaller hospitals allowed him to behave in his reckless and criminal way with relative freedom. He was frequently welcomed with open arms and treated like a celebrity, and he loved that. He craved it. Here is a quote written by a psychiatry historian, Elliot Valenstein. To the hard-pressed hospital superintendents, an offer by Freeman to visit and demonstrate transorbital lobotomy seemed like a godsend. What they didn't know, that in essence, they had made a deal with the devil, so to speak. An enterprising superintendent could publicize Freeman's visit and possibly parlay it into increased appropriations for his hospital. And here's an explanation from Freeman about his trips. What I wanted was a large group of cases to work on that would under no conditions have the services of a surgeon available and I thought to find them in in isolated locations. Did he not forget that he wasn't a surgeon either? Many of the neurologists and psychiatrists didn't want to learn how to do the trans to do the transorbital lobotomy and were ridiculed and pushed into learning it. Physicians that were obviously anxious and visibly shaking would be doing the procedure. Now, is that who you want doing brain surgery on you? When visiting the Herrick Hospital, a procedure went terribly wrong. Freeman outdid himself in the handling of this disaster. Now I'm going to tell you about an operation he did at Herrick Hospital. You would think that by now, nothing would shock me about this guy. And it's just so not true because he just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But this situation sums up everything bad about him and how bad he had gotten and how much worse he could be. When visiting Herrick Hospital, a procedure went terribly wrong. Freeman outdid himself in the handling of the disaster. Freeman had his sons, Paul and Franklin, assist him with lobotomies at the hospital. During the lobotomy, the patient became paralyzed on her entire right side. She was hemorrhaging profusely. She was going into shock and the woman needed emergency medical intervention. So Freeman stopped the surgery to have emergency medical care sought out for this woman? No. He stopped operating, left the patient with his sons. He sought out the husband and found him in the waiting room and demanded a payment of $1,000 as a cost for fixing and saving his wife's life. Freeman caused the bleeding and the paralysis due to his recklessness, due to his criminal behavior, due to not being a surgeon. I can go on and on. And he left this patient with a profound injury, bleeding to death with his sons and extorted money out of her husband to save her? This gets better. Here's, here's more of the quote or telling of the story. He took a bicycle pump out of his bag and connected it to a metal pipe. He filled the bulb of the filthy bicycle pump with saline, placed the tube in the opening of the hole of the eye socket. He vigorously pumped the saline into the hole, then extracted 
a dark, bloody mess which squirted into the basin. Then filling the bulb again, Freeman repeated the grisly procedure over and over, all the time keeping up rutting patter with nurses and doctors who were unaccustomed to this procedure. At one point, he ordered a nurse to inject the patient with vitamin K to speed up the process of coagulation. In the meantime, Paul Freeman periodically ran a car key up and down the sole of the patient's right foot to test for a reflex response, and nothing happened. Freeman continued to pump the saline in and out of her brain until the liquid in the discharge basin changed from dark red to light pink. After a seemingly interminable period of time, the key finally elicited a response, which became stronger and stronger, and the patient was finally stabilized, but was left brain damage. So much for an easy, safe procedure. Freeman thrived on the horror and fascination that accompanied such demonstrations. And when this was over and he headed back home, he said, it was a field trip and I left a string of black eyes all the way from Washington to Seattle. I hate this guy. I don't know how he continued to get away with this. In fact, I kind of do. And I don't know what makes me more angry that he was able to bully himself into do this, but he was so sneaky. He was a, a slimy little snake that knew how to slip in and out of hospitals and or hide it in his his private office and just manipulate and con people into either being quiet or he pay them off under the table whatever but I don't know why this guy is not more widely known not a lot of people know about Walter Freeman and I personally think that he was one of America's first serial killers one of its first maniacs. And I don't know why he's not listed as that. Anyway, down from my soapbox. His travels kept him removed from his troubled marriage. Shortly after that, a series of events ultimately ended the reign of terror on innocent people across America. It was about time. He could no longer hide or cover up his destruction. He could no longer charm people. The drug Thorazine was developed in 1950, and it was called the chemical lobotomy. Only you could stop this drug, and therefore its effects, by just stop administering it. Let me take you through the last few years of Freeman's demented career. As we found out together, no one was safe from Freeman's lobotomy. He could justify any scenario as being appropriate. I think the worst victims were children, it's so hard to pick out any one vulnerable group of people that's worse than the last, but you don't mess with kids. Lobotomizing children is one of the most heinous crimes that could be committed. He also found interest in lobotomizing children when his career was in decline, making him that much more desperate and dangerous. In 1952, he was fired by St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and in 1954, he told George Washington University was leaving, and they were more than happy to let him go. Freeman's motto when it came to lobotomy was, get him early and get him often. Walter compared normal childhood growth and development to expected adult behavior. 
you can't compare kids with their growing beautiful brains to already established and developed adult brain. Freeman fully and completely believed that the mentally ill function better with less brain. So he applied this to children as well. And most, if not all, children were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And we know that this is very rare for children under 12 to be diagnosed. The fact was, is that the children were likely not mentally ill at all. They were normal children who might have been acting out or just acting like kids. We know that they go through different stages of growth and development. Like from two to three, they don't understand sharing and they often have temper tantrums. At the age of three to four, they have fears of the dark and monsters under their bed. Four years old, five years old, they are often fighting with siblings and they ask a lot of questions. They like to tell stories. Uh, they do have some moodiness and mood swings and can show some aggression towards family members. And they're very independent and want to do their own thing. And they're also selfish and don't like to share. Now, I'm just talking about all the kind of negative things that... Uh, four to five year olds go through, but it's all in the process of learning, of growing. And it must be incredibly frustrating to be four to five years old and trying to figure out the world. So, you know, just think about these things. He could take those normal growth and development issues or periods of time, benchmarks, and say, oh, well, the kid is moody and he doesn't want to share and he fights and he wants to do things on his own. Well, you know, that's a kid with some serious mental health issues, likely schizophrenic, lobotomize from 6 to 12. You know, they're, they start to show jealousy towards others. They try to act like adults and they still have the occasional temper tantrum. So, you know, going on 9, 10, then through puberty, there are all these types of, of behaviors. You know, boys and girls become interested in each other or, you know, or they just you know, are looking into relationships, they start delving into the idea of, of sex, and they struggle for independence, and they, you know, different uh, dangerous risk-taking behavior. It's just what happens. And that's our job as adults, as parents, to help guide them through these things. But to Walter Freeman, he would use this as proof that they were crazy. Not only that, it was likely that these children were going through normal growth and development stages of their, of their life. There were some children who may very well have had mental illness or developmental delay, or they've had a head injury or an underlying medical condition, uh, like a brain tumor or problems with the pituitary, adrenal or thyroid glands, or they may have been traumatized. Maybe they were being abused, or just having rebellious behavior. After all this, none of those children should have been lobotomized. I mean, this was not the dark ages. They may not have had the knowledge we have now, but there was common sense, morals and ethics, and there was enough medical understanding not to lobotomize children. And most physicians felt this way. I have a perfect example of a boy that fits Freeman's ridiculous devastating criteria for a lobotomy. It took place in 1960. His name is Howard Dully. Howard was a rambunctious young boy who was full of energy. He was a big kid, very tall and strong for his age. And he had a brother. His mom died when he was young. 
and his father remarried in 1955 to a woman by the name of Lou. She had had some children from a previous marriage. She immediately took over the household. She disliked Howard right away and began abusing him. She would tell lies to his father about his supposed bad behavior, and his father was very passive. And even though he didn't believe all the things she said, he would punish him anyway. He was constantly being punished and alienated from the rest of the family. She eventually sought out Walter Freeman to have him lobotomized, using her false and exaggerated stories and Freeman's loose morals and standards. It led to Howard getting a lobotomy at the age of 12. His life would never be the same. This terribly abused and now permanently brain-damaged boy would live a life of trauma and despair. My next episode actually will be about Howard Dully's life. You need to really listen to this. It's a tragic story, but a story that's also amazing and shows the incredible courage of this man. Now, I'm not going to go into details about the abuse and trauma that the children that were lobotomized suffered. I think it's enough to know that it happened. What I will tell you is this. The youngest child he lobotomized was four years old. And they ranged between the ages of four and 16. There was a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, 11, you know. I can't think of one reason why you would do that to a growing brain, of why you would do that for so many reasons. Many children also died at his hands. Like usual, he just chalked it up to a win some and lose some motto. During the time that he was actively lobotomizing children, there was a conference and Freeman decided that it was the perfect time to showcase his lobotomized children cases and discuss and brag about his success. And it did not go well at all. And he was shocked and dismayed by their reaction. He picked up these children himself, some of them who had just been recently lobotomized and drove them to the conference. He paraded the children on stage. And this is a quote from one of the very upset physicians who attended the conference. With the children presented like livestock, the specter of damaged brains prevailed. The audience of doctors was outraged. They were yelling out at him from their seats. So then Freeman had a temper tantrum on stage. He spilled out a box containing more than 500 Christmas cards that he received from lobotomy patients all over the stage. And he yelled, how many Christmas cards did you get? His outburst scared these poor children which incited the crowd even more. Clearly, he measured his success by popularity and not by scientific success or advancement. This incident led to another assault of his integrity. In 1960, the Palo Alto Hospital ended his staff memberships on the grounds of his advocacy of lobotomy in the treatment of children. Now, I'm just going to back up a little bit because I skipped over a couple things here. Freeman had moved from Washington, D.C. to California because he, things were getting hot, as he put it. He was no longer teaching. His practice had failed. Hospitals had stripped him of his positions as heads of the department, and no one wanted to work with him. He was no longer being offered professorships. 
Of course, he said he left because he would rather live in California as the weather was better and he would like it more because he could do one of his favorite things, which was hiking. The fact is, he was pretty much run out of Washington. He moved to California and set up home. His wife Marjorie was miserable as her life was a wreck, and the only thing she really had was in Washington. But what he also did, to add insult to injury, was that he moved his mistress out to California with them. But he had her put up in an apartment. That was kind of the final straw for Marjorie, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, and she wanted a divorce. But then she realized that Freeman would just screw her over, so she packed up and moved back to Washington. A very lonely and defeated woman, but at least she could be around family and friends and away from his abuse. It was in California that Freeman began to lobotomize children after he got away from the heat. Now, shortly after that, Marjorie had to live in a nursing home because she was developing dementia due to the alcoholism and she had had many falls. Also at this time, his son Randy was dying of brain cancer. Freeman continued on his cross-country road trips to follow up on his past lobotomized patients and continued to lobotomize patients even though at this time in the 1960s, Thorazine was being used to treat a variety of mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, bipolar, severe behavioral problems in children like ADHD. Thorazine is a antipsychotic medication and it became into popular it came into popular use in 1953. That and psychoanalysis was the choice of carrot at that point. And the days of psychosurgery were pretty much over. But Freeman would refuse to let it go. And here's a quote from a colleague. Freeman refused to open his eyes to the possibilities that new medications offered. He had staked his career on the efficacy of lobotomy and he would not let go of his beliefs. The stubbornness, egotism, and ambition that directed his thinking were his greatest flaws. Freeman's assumptions proved false. Following Thorazine, came other drugs even more affected in treating neurosis and psychiatric illness. Meanwhile, psychosurgery never again returned to center stage in the treatment of psychiatric disease. When he moved to California, he fully expected to have positions just thrown at him, but he was sadly disappointed. When applying for the California license, he was told that he would have to write a fitness to practice test, which he protested, and he couldn't believe that he was expected to write a test considering who he was. So he did anyway, and unfortunately he passed. In California, the best he could do was work in private practice. He and his bad reputation followed him. He was an embarrassment to the field of medicine. He had burnt so many bridges from his arrogance and corrupt and abusive medical practices. The rejection of the Palo Alto Clinic, however, represented the first gust of chilly wind blowing against him in his new home state. Whatever minuscule amount of credibility he may have had in Washington was left there when he moved. No doctor would refer patients to him. Ironically, the only patients he had left were the ones he called hopeless. The very same patients that disgusted him and he said deserved no sympathy from him when he first arrived at St. Elizabeth's Hospital as a new doctor. So let's go through some things 
chronologically. In 1953, Thorazine became the treatment of choice. In 1955, Egesmonas dies. In 1956, Freeman develops basal cell cancer on his shoulder and face. He also develops diabetes. He's starting to go blind and has an enlarged prostate. And this is very interesting. He had advanced stages of venereal disease on his anus. 1961, he was fired from Palo Alto. 1967, in 1967, he was stripped of his hospital privileges at Herrick Memorial Hospital after killing one of his patients, after giving her her third lobotomy. Her name was Helen Mortensen, and he was her first, or one of her first, transorbital lobotomy patients in 1946. And this is what he wrote. This time, to my dismay, she had a hemorrhage and died in three days. This was the last day I operated. 1967, Marjorie slipped and fell and was placed into a nursing home uh, that required even more care. In the summer of 1967, he had rectal discomfort so much that he was unable to hike. He was diagnosed with perianal Paget's disease, which pretty much is a rare illness that is associated with rectal cancer, which is what his father died from. So he had to have a colostomy, which ironically is a procedure that his grandfather invented. So he kind of saved him from the grave. At this time, Walter considered suicide, but then changed his mind and wrote a book instead. But that book bombed. And 1968 is when good old Walter showed even more ugliness and insanity in him. Marjorie developed a circulatory uh, problem in her left leg that resulted in gangrene. The hospital requested his consent for surgery as Marjorie was not of sound mind to make that decision. And this is what Walter said. I refused the surgery because it was obvious that she would never recover. He clearly didn't believe in palliative care, bringing comfort and dignity to a dying person. But isn't it funny that he did do transorbital lobotomies on palliative patients? If it wasn't for her sons, he would have let her die in agony without treatment. He disgusts me. It gets better. His sons, Walter and Paul, disagreed with Walter, of course, and they tried to make him change his mind. And he said that he would take them to court over it if they tried to do that. Take, her to, take them to court. He refused to go to court in his career to settle legal matters he sold all his malpractice suits out of court so he wouldn't get busted. But in this case, he would have gone to court. He would have fought to let his wife die a horrible death. Thankfully, her sons had moved her to another hospital where they consented for the surgery. She lived another two years, but she died in 1970 of pneumonia, the end of a tortured life, mostly brought on by Walter Freeman. In 1968, his son Randy was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He had never been the same since his brother Keen had died. He was a kind and lonely man. He did get married and soon after was diagnosed with malignant melanoma that began as a mole in his back. He was diagnosed later that year with a massive brain tumor. And at 31 years old, he was in a coma. They tried to give him surgery, but he died days later. Freeman would not visit his son, even though he knew he was dying. He was not at his bedside when he died. 
and he wouldn't have nothing to do with his funeral arrangements. He didn't go to his funeral. He decided to attend a medical conference instead. He sold his office and his house and bought himself a camper to live in. He also called this camper his lobotomobile. As he was going to travel across the country to peddle his transorbital lobotomy and follow up on his former patients, he called it the Great Manhunt of 1968. At this point, he was pretty much a lost and pathetic man. He abandoned his family, he had no home, the medical profession had shunned him, and he did not have any respect, and he was dying of cancer. He didn't get any recognitions from the universities and hospitals that he worked for that he felt was well-deserved and owed to him. The U of Pennsylvania gave him recognition honoring him as a distinguished alumni, but not as a professor emeritus. A professor emeritus is where you're giving the lifelong designation of professor even after you retire. And he received no satisfaction from that. And he quoted, in regards to the certificate, I've put it away in my bureau with a large other certificates framed and unframed. They were not enough. I have waited in vain for an honorary degree of which my grandfather had six or seven. Freeman suffered from multiple forms of cancer and he lived longer than he predicted when his health first took a nosedive in 1967. Late spring of 1972, Freeman fell into a coma, dying from advanced stage colon cancer. And unlike anything he would do for his family, they gathered around his bed and comforted him while he was dying. And he died on May 31st, 1972, at the age of 76. The year after Freeman died, Oregon put into place legislation limiting the practice of psychosurgery by setting up a governor-appointed review board to approach each proposed operation. Many other states followed suit by placing the power of approval in the hands of members of the medical community or judges. Bans or restrictions on lobotomy were so tight and mandated in such nations as Japan, Australia, and Germany. Many lawsuits followed and important positive changes were made in the field of psychiatry, like informed consent and full disclosure. Because of the legal changes, many physicians abandoned psychosurgery rather than face malpractice from their patients. Lobotomy has gone down in history as one of the most horrific treatments and abuse to patients in psychiatric history. This ends my mini-series on Dr. Lobotomy. And I'm going to be honest, I was looking forward to the end of this because this guy was really getting to me. How do you sum this up? I think I said it all as I've gone along. And some of you have made comments saying how much you dislike this man as well. So it's hard for me to say this in one way, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm kind of glad he died the way he did. I'm kind of glad that he went down in a burst of flames. I honestly don't wish anybody dying of cancer. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the physical, I'm talking about how he was just discredited. His 
luck, so to speak, had run out. It had caught up with him. He had just destroyed or indirectly destroyed over 50,000 lives by spreading this lobotomy disease around North America. I'm going to leave it there. I think everything that needs to be said has been said. If any of you have any comments or questions, please feel free to contact me. I'm currently improving and working on my website where I will be including links to the content of the lobotomy series and some videos and pictures, etc. My website is www.stattales, S-T-A-T-T-A-L-E-S dot C-A. On there, you can also find some of my new merchandise that I'm selling. I have t-shirts and mugs and caps. I also have some stickers available and I will be adding to that collection. So if you're interested, check it out. Like I said, my page is a work in progress, but it's going to look beautiful before you know it. You can also find me on Twitter at stat underscore tales. And I would love it if you would join my Facebook discussion page. And it's called stat shocking traumas and treatments. Stop by, join in. Everybody there is wonderful. We talk about all kinds of things, and I would love you to join in. And if you wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes and maybe leaving me a review and a rating, that would be great. I'm not asking or telling you to leave me a five star. I want to hear what you think. Show me the love or direct me in how I can do a better job. And if you could also check out my Patreon page, it would be great. I have all my episodes there and I'll be adding more content. And I would really appreciate your support. So if you can please check that out and I uh, have a little video on there describing some of my goals, which is to cover the costs of the production of the show and improve my equipment so I can continue to give a better and better quality podcast. So that is the end of episode six, the end of Dr. Lobotomy. But it's not time to leave yet because it's time for the suturing. So come on in and have a lie down on the stretcher. I've got two comfy pillows and a warm blankie. This time, I got you TV, but we're going to keep it off for now because I'm going to be your entertainment. I'm going to tell you a wacky, wild, true story from my days as a nurse in the ER. So get cozy. I got you a bendy straw for your ice water. And here we go. Okay, I'm going to give you a heads up warning about this particular story because it is a little graphic and you might not want to listen to it while you're at work or with kids around. I call this one Mr. Clean. 
I was working in the acute care zone when an ambulance rode into my area with a middle-aged man lying on his side on a stretcher. He looked very uncomfortable. I greeted the paramedics and directed them to an empty room, and I asked them what was the reason why he was brought in. They told me that they would give me a full report at the nurse's station, but they did divulge that the patient had a foreign object up his bum. I just looked at them and shrugged and gingerly moved the patient onto the bed. I checked his rectal area and saw a white plastic stick protruding from his anus. There was minimal bleeding and no signs of necrosis. I hooked him up to a monitor and called the doctor to come see him right away because I didn't know if there was any internal bleeding. I went to the nurse's station and got a full report. The paramedics were called to a cheap, seedy motel. When they arrived, they heard yelling and screaming coming from the room. When they entered the room, they saw a man lying on his side on a bed, moaning and crying and cursing at a woman. There was a woman standing over top of him, calling him every name in the book and saying, You get what you deserve. Be careful what you wish for. It turns out that the woman was a prostitute. And the John asked the woman if he could stick a toilet bowl brush into an orifice of hers. She said, okay, but first, why don't you take your clothes off and lie in the bed first, and I will warm you up. And he complied. While he was lying on the bed on his stomach, she proceeded to plunge the brush into his said orifice. All of which led to the paramedics and the police to the scene. The prostitute was arrested, the man had the pledger removed, and he recovered fully, and he was also charged. I guess when you break the law, you get it in the end. I know. I try. Anyway, that's it for today in the Suture Room. So thank you for listening and joining me on STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And remember, sometimes the cure can kill you. Ha, 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 ha.